And so we as a church, as I said earlier, we're speaking about the kingdom of God and the reason why we're pausing and we're taking an opportunity to lean into the kingdom of God is because Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God a lot. In fact, it could be argued that the single biggest thing that Jesus speaks about is the kingdom of God. And for that reason, if he thinks that it's important for us to to wrestle with and to just come to an understanding of... If it's important to him, it has to be important to us. And so last week, we kind of asked the question, when is the first time that reigning and ruling is spoken about in the Scriptures? If you had to start on page one, just start paging through, the answer is we see at the pinnacle of God's creation, when God comes to creating humanity, part of the God-given mandate for humanity is to reign and to rule His creation. Now you need to understand, this is a designated leadership. We don't go out and do our own thing. We don't go and build our own kingdoms. He is the ultimate Lord. He is the ultimate creator. But He has positioned us to reign and rule in His creation. And just before you start importing your understandings of reigning and ruling, He is going to define that for us. But nonetheless, that is the position He has placed us in. And yet, when we look through the pages of history, when we look through the pages of Bible, of the Bible, we as humans have been doing a horrible job of being submitted to Him and seeing God's kingdom come through our faithful obedience. And so what starts, the question that starts to emerge in our hearts is, is there not going to be a human that does this well? Is there not going to be a human through whom we don't only see occasional glimpses of God's kingdom coming through their submitted obedience, but we see a human who is fully submitted to God. And therefore every word and every action is bringing God's kingdom all the time. And of course Jesus comes and He says, I am that. I am the full image of God. I am the perfect human. And so what we're going to be doing today is, if you see last week as one layer, one layer looking at humanity's role in the kingdom and Jesus' fulfillment of that role, today we're going to be looking at layer two. We're going to be looking at the layer of the king. We've been singing about the layer of the king. And what you need to do is just kind of keep last week in one hand and this week in another hand. And you're going to see some harmony and some beauty developing as these layers interact, all right? So that's where we're going this morning. So last week, the first question that I asked was, When is the first time in Scripture that we see this idea of reigning and ruling? Now, as we talk about this, I don't know if this question has ever popped up in your mind. But how would you do as a king or a queen? Now, I know we we kind of live in a democracy and um, I'm asking you to use your imagination. But you you wake up tomorrow morning and outside your home is like, you know, kilometers of the blue light brigade and there's all sorts of letters and there's all sorts of pomp and circumstance and people walk into your home and they're saying you are now the king or you are now the queen so just roll with me on that what would your first step be now you don't have to say that out loud because you know maybe there's like what I know I should do and what I'm actually going to do but what would your first step be How would you do this thing? How would you reign and rule? What kinds of future for our kingdom would you generate? What kinds of laws would you create? How would you try and win the hearts of the people over? How would you try and lead in such a way that people come with you? 
How would you deal with kind of public opposition? How would you deal with powerful people who oppose you? And at the end of the day, what kind of kingdom are you gonna bring by the answers to all of those questions? Now, I don't know if it's just me because I don't wanna judge you in this, but I know when I start positioning myself as king in my mind, I start going out on a power trip. I'm starting to imagine, you know, my words have this sovereign power. I just say things and people are bowing and scraping. And of course, my life is uber comfortable and, you know, to make up for all the other difficulties of leadership. But I'm in charge, man. I'm king. And I don't know if maybe you go there, but I'm definitely on a power trip as we think about this. And the reason why I'm asking you this question is because as we're speaking about the kingdom, the kingdom necessitates a king. And so while last week's question was, when is the first time reigning and ruling is spoken about? Here's today's kind of opening Bible question. When is the first time in the Bible that God is spoken about clearly as king? Now, let me just state from the first words of the first pages of the Bible, it's assumed he is king. He is the one who didn't need creation. He is the one who brought everything else into creation. This is his creation. We are his created people and we have our sovereign orders from him. It's kind of assumed. But I'm asking, when is the first time it is explicitly stated that God is king? Now, again, there's no kind of points for this because I'm going to just go there because I know you're saying, Stephen, I don't know. And the first time this comes up, it actually comes up in a song. And the song is a song of celebrating God's power, His might, and His victory after a very powerful moment where God came in and He demonstrated His kingdom. He demonstrated in His power and He demonstrated His authority. And so, Stephen, what event are you speaking about? Well, the event is an event that is probably very well known to most of you. In fact, even if you're not particularly religious or a Christian, you've probably heard of the stories and you've probably even seen some of the animated movies that speak about the story. But it's kind of, it's a, it's a massive story in the picture of Israel. And if we just think about how Israel started, Israel started through one man and his family and it was through his family that God gave him descendants, as the man Abraham. And then his descendants had descendants, and then their descendants had descendants, and their descendants had descendants, until ultimately uh, one of the kind of patriarchs in this story was a man called Jacob, and he became known as Israel. And all of these descendants, this entire family, became known as Israelites, named after this man Israel. And at this moment in this story, roughly at this moment in the story, there was a massive famine in the land of Israel. And what needed to happen was all of these people, at this stage, numbering an incredible number, they had to leave this land and enter the land of Egypt. And they were given, just through, uh, again, I don't have time to go into all these stories, but they were given uh, kind of the prime land of Egypt. They were given fertile land, and they were able to set down their tent pegs, and they were able to build farms, and uh, they had an incredible time of flourishing, and they continued to grow. They probably had a lot of dedications every single day, because they continued to have kids, and then their kids continued to have kids, and their kids continued to have kids. Until there was this massive number of Israelites. And then a Pharaoh rose up. 
a Pharaoh who didn't quite like what he was seeing in front of him. And he started realizing, man, I don't know if I'm happy about all these Israelites. And he started to feel threatened by the presence of this growing nation in his country. And so what he decided to do is instead of letting them continue to thrive and grow in this way, he decided to use them as slave labor. So he turned around and started oppressing the Israelites with violence and oppression, literally people dying at the hands of Egyptians. And what started to happen was people started crying out to God. And then God kind of steps in and he raises up the person of Moses. And then Moses comes in, and I'm just going so quickly through these stories, but Moses comes in under God's command and he speaks to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Moses, uh, sorry, Pharaoh opposes Moses and he says, no ways. And what starts to happen is the cycle of let my people go. No, I'm not gonna let my, your people go. And then God sends a plague and he does this 10 times until eventually Pharaoh is so broken and he's so defeated. He says, okay, just go, just get out of here. I don't wanna see you anymore. And so as the Israelites, it's this incredible work of God. They leave one evening and uh, just literally by the millions and they leave and they start heading towards the land that they left 400 years before that. But sometime that night, Pharaoh decides, you know what, I made a mistake. I, I don't know if I can carry on building my cities with uh, Egyptian slave labor. It was just wonderful having free Israelite slave labor. And so I want them back. And so while the Israelites are heading towards the land again, Pharaoh decides to send his armies after them. And the Israelites find themselves literally between a rock and a hard place, between the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt behind them. And God says, listen, I'm not done with you guys. And so he says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your staff. I want you to touch the, the ocean. And when Moses did that, God opened up the seas and the Israelites were able to walk through. When they got to the other side, God closed the seas and pretty much destroyed the armies of the Egyptians. And I, I just want to show you how the story ends just so that when we get onto uh, the song that I spoke about earlier, we're kind of on the same page. So this story ends in the Exodus 14, verse 29. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the wall of water on the right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servants. And so they are just kind of in the aftermath of this incredible, victorious display of God's power over the Egyptians. And they do what comes naturally, maybe not to you, but to kind of charismatic Israelites who've just seen God at work. They decide to sing. It's the first thing that they do. And so the next verse in uh, Exodus 15 is, and then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I'm not gonna read the whole song, but it starts off telling the deeds of God. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. And this is the way the song ends. We're already starting to see the Lord is highly exalted. And then the song ends with these words, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the first time it is explicitly mentioned that God will reign, that God is king. 
Now this is so important because maybe you're new to the faith and this might be news to you and that's kind of cool because you're growing in this together. But this story that I've just told you becomes the archetype for all other stories that involve God's reigning and ruling in His kingdom. In fact, this narrative is probably one of the most common themes picked up in the New Testament concerning God's ruling in our lives and how He saves us and redeems us. And so it's so important that we kind of dig our teeth into this story because it's going to shape how we understand all other stories. And so here's a question I want to ask of this story. It is so important. According to this story, what happens when God comes as King? What happens when God comes as king, when God rules, when God acts, when God brings in his kingdom? The first thing we see is that God confronts and defeats evil. God confronts and he defeats evil. So what is the evil in this case? Well, the evil is an oppressive empire, an oppressive Pharaoh, and God visits his judgment on Pharaoh and on his empire because they were unjust and oppressive. So God defeats them. There's another layer to this. Again, don't have time for this, but you've heard of the 10 plagues? Well, what, one of the layers of what's going on in the 10 plagues is that God is actually displaying his might over the false gods of the Egyptians. And each of those plagues is, represents a God of the Egyptians and God showing, no, 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 this is not a God worth worshiping or trusting. I am more powerful than this so-called being or this so-called God. And he is again, he is confronting and defeating evil in this incredible act of redeeming his people. So that's the first thing that happens. The second thing that happens is that God rescues and liberates His people. His people have been in slavery. They have been oppressed. They've been crying out to God. And so God comes in, not just to flex His muscles, but to free and liberate His people. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't kind of leave them on the other side of the Red Sea and say, hey guys, I've got you out of slavery. I've got you out of this oppressive moment. And so just go for it and go well. Because the third move that God does when He is king is so important because then He invites them to live under His reign. So He confronts the evil. He releases His people. And then He invites them to live under His reign. The next big move with regards to this nation and God's engagements with this nation is that they find themselves around a mountain. And Moses, their leader, goes up the mountain and God gives Moses the Torah, the law. Literally in English, we would call it instruction. This is how you are to live as my people. I've I've displayed my power. I've confronted and defeated evil. I've liberated you. Now come and live in my kingdom under my reign and rule. Now, I know you know the answer to the question, but how do you think the Israelites did? I mean, wouldn't you think after seeing this display of power over and against Pharaoh and their gods, after seeing God miraculously release them into freedom, don't you think they'd be so grateful at this benevolent, powerful, loving king who would do this for their behalf, that they would do everything to live in his ways? Don't you think that's kind of what we would expect? But that's not what we see. 
That's not what we see in their lives. That's not what we see in our lives, right? We've just got a very short-term memory when it comes to living under the reign and the kingdom of God. And so there comes a moment as this nation develops and for a number of generations, they do this kind of success, failure, failure, success, failure, failure, kind of season of living under God's kingship. There's no king for Israel and, and, and you know, they, they, they kind of leave God's ways and then somebody brings it back and they leave God's ways and somebody brings it back until they get to the point when they say, you know what, we want our own king. Now, do you think, and I'm importing so much from last week, do you think that the heart behind them wanting a king was, listen, we're not doing well here, so we need someone. We need a human who's gonna be so submitted to God, who's gonna be so in tune with Him that under His reign and under their rule, we're just gonna see God's kingdom flourishing here and we're gonna be just flourishing and worshiping God in this land because of that. Do you think that was their motive? I kind of wish that was their motive because the Bible tells us what their real motives were. The reason why they wanted a king was because all the other cool kids had a king. You know, I mean, some of you parents know, like uh, uh, your kids come home and it's like, but everybody's got an Xbox and now they want an Xbox. And in this case, the Israelites were saying, all the other nations have kings, we want a king. And that was kind of their motive. And so God kind of tries to resist and he tries to oppose them until eventually he gives in and allows them to have a king. But even going one step further, God knew this was gonna happen. God prophesied this was gonna happen. And if you're looking for some bedtime reading this week, just go and read chapter 17 of the book of Deuteronomy where God says, listen, guys, the time is gonna come when you're gonna want a king. It's not my plan A for you, but nonetheless, if you are, however, gonna have a king, this is the kind of king that he needs to be. And then Deuteronomy chapter seven kind of describes the kind of king that Israel needs. And he says a number of things about this king. He says, number one, he mustn't amass for himself a lot of personal wealth. Number two, he says he should never gather for himself his own armies. And number three, he says he needs to have a handwritten copy of the Torah, the instruction of how to live under God's ways. But not just any handwritten copy, he needs to have handwritten it himself. And for the rest of his days, he needs to be a student of God's ways. I mean, I don't know if you're kind of thinking, that doesn't sound like a king, that sounds more like a priest. Well, if that's how you think, you are on the right track. But God says, this is how the king ought to be. So let me ask you a question. Israel's first three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, how did they do on that? All three of those got armies. All three of those amassed great personal wealth. And all three of those failed in understanding and living out and breathing God's Torah to the point where it was being infused into the nation. And then the land split between north and south, kind of civil war. And between the north and the south, there were about 40 kings. And you know, out of the 40 kings, only eight got maybe a passing grade, maybe a B minus. Because even at their best, they still failed. And so what started to happen was God's people started doing some reflecting because at the end of the season, the nation becoming divided between north and south, eventually God's people found themselves right back where they started, out of their land, under the land of another oppression, oppressive nation. This time it wasn't the Egyptians, it was the Babylonians. 
and they're treated as slaves again. They don't have their land. They don't have their people. They don't have their ways. Their ways. And so they're doing a lot of praying, a lot of reflecting, a lot of God, what are you saying? What are you doing here? And God started to grow in the hearts of the prophets this idea that, listen, guys, you've tried to do it your way. Now I'm going to do it my way. But the way I'm going to do it is this. And this comes out in some of the Psalms, this comes out in some of the prophets, the day will come when God himself will come to reign and rule in Zion. God himself, the one we know is king, he's not gonna send someone else in his name. He himself will come and do this. And one of the more powerful passages that describes this is in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to these people who are in this land of exile. They're kind of in this moment, kind of not exactly the same slavery, but this moment of exile and and suffering and oppression. And he's writing to them and he writes about this moment that's gonna come. And the way he describes this future moment, just use your imagination here. He's just defining this moment as a time in the future where Israel, they're back on their land, but they're not who they should be. Jerusalem's there, but Jerusalem is not who Jerusalem should be. And, and there's these big city walls and there are these watchmen on the walls because they needed to see if people were coming. And, the, and these watchmen look out and they start seeing someone running towards them. And if you've ever been to Israel, you'd know it's kind of a mountainous part around Judea, around Jerusalem. So this guy comes running out of the mountains, but instead of being a threat to the city, he's bringing some information. And just in your mind's eye, picture this moment that Isaiah predicts is going to happen in Israel's future. And this is what he says. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen, lift up their voices. Together they they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has confirmed his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And so this picture of the watchman seeing this guy coming from the mountains is a picture of this guy bringing good news. And what is the good news? The good news is the Lord has returned to Zion. Our God reigns. Now just be geeky with me for the next few minutes, right? This may be news to some of you that Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. Now, at the time of Jesus, most people were speaking Greek. So just before that, what a few scholars did is that they took the Old Testament in Hebrew and they translated it into Greek. And so the Greek New Testament is known as the Septuagint. Now, they come to verse 7 of these verses I've just read to you. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Any idea what the translators of those verses, translating into Greek, decided to translate those words into? Now, if I say it in Greek, maybe it means nothing, but it's the word evangelion. It's the word from which we get in our English, the gospel. That the feet of those people are bringing the gospel. 
They're bringing the good news that our God reigns. We looked at this two weeks ago. The gospel, the good news, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The good news of the kingdom. And so you need to understand how loaded the statements are when Jesus stands amongst His people and He says, the kingdom of God is here. This is the good news of God. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. What is He saying? He is saying, amongst the things we spoke about last week, he's saying, I am the king returning to Zion. I am the presence of the king who is now among you. So back to your first question this morning. The question was, how would you do as king? How would you extend your influence? How would you change the world? So let me shift that question slightly. Historically, how have kings tended to extend their influence? How they tried to grow their nations? In every single time, isn't the answer they've done it with war, with violence, with oppression? I mean, in our nation, we've got this complicated, painful history of colonialism. Isn't that what is happening? What makes it even more confusing is that a whole lot of religion gets thrown into it. So the armies come in and the guns come, but they also come with the Bible. And other times it comes with another religious text. And many of these mandates in the minds of these people is that I am doing God's work. I'm bringing God's kingdom. We saw this a number of years ago with ISIS. That is what they thought they were doing. They were bringing God's kingdom to earth. But how were they doing it? Violence, oppression, injustice. And even sadly, in our own Christian history, we see that with kind of the Crusades. There's a movie about the Crusades. Some of you saw it called The Kingdom of God. They thought they were doing God's work by bringing God's kingdom in the ways of the world. But now we see Jesus. We're like, well, where's the armies? Where's this display of muscle and this display of power? And here's where we start getting insight into the nature of God's rule and the nature, the upside down nature of God's kingdom. So how does this king take over the world? How does he extend his kingdom? Well, I wanna show you that we've got some clues already. We asked, after seeing the Exodus story, we asked the question, what does it look like when God brings his kingdom? What does it look like when God comes as king? And we saw the first thing he does is he confronts and he defeats evil. The second thing he does is he rescues and liberates his people. The third thing he does is he invites them to live under his reign. Now this comes out so clearly in Jesus' ministry. I'm just gonna give you one verse kind of illustrating this. Matthew 4, verses 23, right at the beginning, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. And it says here, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so how was Jesus confronting and defeating evil? Well, just as Jesus came into public ministry, he was led into the deserts where he had a bit of a face down with the enemy. And he was tempted to the degree that every human being would be tempted, but he won. 
And then Jesus comes in and as he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, he displays the power over evil by casting out demons and by freeing and liberating people from demons and from sickness and from any work of the enemy. And so he is regularly displaying, this is the act of the king. And now I'm doing the work of the king. And so he's confronting and defeating evil. How is he rescuing and liberating his people? Man, he's, he's freeing people from, from disease. He's freeing people from lies. He's freeing people from strongholds. He's freeing people from the, the work of the enemy and the demonic presence of evil in their lives. And so every person who encountered the kingdom of God through Jesus went from slavery into freedom. Slavery into freedom. And so how did Jesus do his third move, inviting people to live under his reign? Well, one of the first things that happened after God released the Israelites under Egypt was that Moses brought down the law of God. What is the first thing that Jesus does in this moment of his bringing God's kingdom? He sits down on a mountain. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, this is what the law of the kingdom looks like in your lives. This is what the ethics of the kingdom looks like. Here is the heart of God's kingdom. This is what it means to be under his reign and rule. And every time God went through Jesus, confronting and defeating evil, freeing and liberating his people, he didn't leave it there. He left them with a decision. Now you need to come and live under my reign and rule with me as king in my kingdom. And so it wasn't just look at my power that is always followed up by this invitation, repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? God is here in Jesus, reigning and ruling, defeating evil, liberating us and bringing his kingdom. Repent. Stop trusting the kingdoms of this world. Stop trusting your wisdom. Stop trusting your understanding. That's trust me. Trust that the king has come in me. God is reigning now in and through me and trust my kingdom and live according to my ways. This symbolism, this parallel between the people of Israel and the New Testament people of God is actually so profound because one of the things God does is he calls 12 men. Now, where do we know the number 12 from? 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus takes 12 men. He says, come and follow me. And it is through you and kind of your spiritual descendants that I'm gonna grow a people. And it's kind of rebooting Israel. Israel 2.0, through Jesus and His kingdom. As people repent, they get freed, they see the defeats of evil in their lives and they follow Him. That becomes known, that group of people becomes known as the church. Jesus starts giving us this idea and Paul brings this idea out so strongly throughout the rest of the scriptures. But guys, it doesn't stop there. And I know we're kind of like, Stephen, I think I'm with you, but I've just got one more big move to make here this morning. Because is that where it ended? Did Jesus just say, hey, this is what my kingdom looks like. Come and join me and just you know, carry on doing your own thing. There was one more major move that Jesus was gonna do. I've already mentioned to you that the single thing that is probably spoken about most in the gospels, especially Matthew, Mark and Luke, is the kingdom. But when we take all four gospels and we say, what events, what moments did these gospel writers focus on? in terms of the amount of time spent with their words. 
It is the week before and including the time that Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Now again, through the eyes of thinking through typical kings and kingdoms, we're like, a dead king is a failed king. That is not a display of power. That is not a display of authority. That's not what we came to expect. We want God to be here as king. And there he is on a cross, naked, ashamed, apparently humiliated and completely defeated. And here's the paradox of the gospel. Is that at the moment when we think God was at his weakest, he was doing his most powerful work. Because what does it look like when God is king? He confronts and he defeats evil. He rescues and liberates his people and he invites them to live under his reign. How does that happen on the cross? I want to read one of the many verses that just kind of get to the heart of it. The book of Romans. The opening verses of Romans. I don't know if you've ever done a Bible reading plan and you're like, listen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, pretty cool, pretty easy to read. John, okay, but tough at times. Acts, you know, that is easy reading. Then you get to Romans. You're just like, I don't understand what I'm reading here. Uh, so Romans is quite a dense book, but basically the short kind of summary of Romans, it's a book on the gospel. And so Paul opens up by writing the, this, these words, describing, here is my goal, here's what I'm gonna talk about for the remainder of my book. So his opening words are this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Remember that means Jesus Messiah. I'm called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand. The good news he promised beforehand through the Holy Scriptures. We read one of those passages, right? God promised this is what he's gonna do. But this gospel is concerning his son who as to his human nature, import last week's message, was a descendant of David, but who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Another way of saying that is Jesus Christ, our King. And so for Paul and for most of his writings and also for the, 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 the writers of the Gospels, yes, there's this amazing moment where God steps into history demonstrating His power and His authority in the kingdom of God. But it climaxes on the cross. And so how does the cross demonstrate God's reign and rule? Well, let me show you. Because what does God's reign and rule looks like? Well, He confronts and He defeats evil. He rescues and liberates His people and He invites them to live under His reign. And so on the cross, he confronts and he defeats evil. But he goes for, you know, up to that time, he was kind of going for the small fry. At this point in time, he goes for the, 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 the kind of the big fish in the big pond. He goes for the main source of evil. And so on the cross, he defeated the enemy. He defeated hell. He defeated the power of sin and he defeated death. But how did he do it? By having a big sword fight? No, he did it by surrendering fully to the consequences of sin and death, hell and Satan. And if at that point in time he stayed dead, then he's not king. But he demonstrated his victory over those powers of evil. And he demonstrated his defeat of those powers of evil by breaking through death, by punching a hole in the power of sin and coming out the other side as the resurrected Lord and Savior. And so it is on the cross and his resurrection that he confronts and he defeats evil. 
He also rescues and He liberates His people. He invites us to be part of His kingdom so that we don't have to be defined by the power of death anymore. And yes, I still know, we're gonna talk more about this in the weeks to come. We still live in this age where God's kingdom has come, but we still live in the age of sin and death. But by us coming into His kingdom, we are guaranteed with absolute certainty verified by His resurrection that we will not taste the final taste of death. And Jesus says, for those who are in my kingdom, they are going to experience victory over sin, victory over the enemy, and victory over death. But then He doesn't just leave it there. He invites us to live under His reign. And this is kind of, we're going to get a lot more practical over the next couple of weeks. We've got two more to go. But this is kind of where I want to land the plane. And, and if you've been with us for the last two weeks, I, I know that some of what I'm about to say may start to sound like stuff I've said the last few weeks. But what I'm hoping is happening is that as we kind of go down the rabbit hole, as we start seeing just how textured this idea is, that our commitments to live out the kingdom just gets deeper and deeper with greater conviction and more courage in your life. So I'm going to ask the stage if the band can come up. Because if we look at these three moves of God, if you can leave that slide up, the previous one. I think so many of us are so happy with what God did on the cross in Jesus. And, and we're happy to sing about it and we're happy to say that Jesus is Lord and look what he accomplished by defeating sin on the cross. And then I think so many of us are happy to make the next move and say, wow, and because of what Jesus did, I can experience genuine freedom. But it's not freedom. I know one of the songs we sing, and I'm gonna kind of get a bit sarcastic here, but we've got a song where it goes, I am free to live, I am free to dance, I am free to sing. And I don't know if that's a freedom God died on the cross for. I'm saying let's sing, let's dance, let's be excited about it. But the kind of freedom the Bible talks about is a freedom from the power of death and sin. And we get excited about that. I hope you do. But I'm convinced for so many Christians making the move to layer three is the toughest. Thank you, Jesus, that I don't go to hell anymore. Thank you, Jesus, for the freedom you've given me. But I'm gonna carry on living my life. And therefore, the invitation this morning is for us to look long and hard at each of those levels. Maybe some of you are gonna be at level one. Maybe for some of you this morning, you're just like, I've never understood Christianity. I've never understood the kingdom and the gospel and the cross and what these Christians get excited about. But now somehow I'm seeing it. And you have an invitation to respond this morning. And to say, yes, what God did in Jesus on the cross is His defeat of evil and death. And I trust that. Now, if you've already been there, just affirm that again in your hearts. But maybe some of us are gonna be just encountering God in level two. You know what, God, I, I, I've, I've sung about these things and I, I kind of you know, understand the importance of the cross, but I don't know if I'm walking in freedom. I don't know if I have submitted myself to the cross. I don't know if I've experienced the release from slavery 
And for some of you, you're gonna be parking off there and please, by all means. But then some of us are gonna be moving on to level three and saying, you know what, Lord? You've done those two things in my life and I'm so grateful. But what I need to do this morning, the decision that I'm gonna make is to repent and trust the King. And I'm gonna align my life into the life of the kingdom. And I'm gonna live under His reign and His rule. For some of us, there's maybe just a couple of minor adjustments as, as God just kind of maybe brings to light some things in your life that you've been trusting your understanding and the ways of this world. For some of you, it's gonna take major repentance, meaning a major turn to bring your life from this trajectory into the life of the kingdom. And I wanna allow us a time to respond to God this morning. We've got some time, so please, let's not rush this moment. And so please, once you close your eyes in prayer and we're gonna be asking for a response this morning. If you feel very strongly that God is calling you to respond to what He did on the cross by confronting and defeating evil, or to respond to His offer of freedom and liberation from death and sin, or if you feel like where God's got your name, it's about inviting you to live under His reign and rule. If you just know, man, God has spoken to you so powerfully, I'm gonna ask you just in this moment to raise your hand. Nothing magical happens, but it's a physical response of you trusting Him this morning. And what I'd like to do for our remaining time together and just even let it bleed into our if you don't need to rush off anywhere, please just stay with us in this moment. If you need to go pick up your kids in a few minutes, by all means. But let's just stick with what God is doing here. I wanna invite us to trust the kingship of God this morning. That this is not just an idea we say yes to, but this is somehow something that gets made manifest amongst us. One of the ways we spoke about this earlier is in prayer. And so just at this stage, church, won't we all stand? We're gonna be singing a song gently together. But I also wanna give you an opportunity and please have the courage to take this opportunity to respond. If you raised your hand or even if you just didn't feel like you had the courage to raise your hand, Please want to come forward and, and there are gonna be leaders in the church and people from the prayer ministry team. And, and if you're sitting here this morning and, and you love prayer and the power of the kingdom and maybe even sitting there, you feel God nudge you to go and pray for somebody, please make yourself available. But as we sing this song, we invite you to respond to God. And as you come forward, we're gonna pray for you and we're gonna trust God's kingdom to come this morning. So God, we trust you. And Jesus, our response to sing in faith and to come and declare dependence upon you in prayer is a recognition that our God reigns in Jesus. 
And Jesus, I ask now that as we come to you in prayer, you are going to oppose evil in the same way you did on the cross. But you're gonna bring it into our realities. So many of us this morning, I was reminded by one of our elders, the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus came to bring life. And this morning in prayer, you choose to trust His life and allow Jesus to confront the enemy on your behalf. And Father, we trust You to release us from slavery this morning, to release us into freedom. And Father, we also commit to live as Yours in Your kingdom. So church, let's sing together, but also please I invite you to come forward as we respond. Thank you.